0: Hi, everyone. It's Damon Klotz, host of the Culture First Podcast. If you want to dive deeper into what you're going to be hearing in today's episode, all you have to do is head to culturefirstpodcast.com slash table, where you can learn more about today's topic and receive a free gift. For this episode, we're going to be offering you The Ugly Truth, an excerpt from Minderhart's book, The Memo. Visit culturefirstpodcast.com slash table to download your copy. All right. Let's get started. So if you were to explain what you do today to a 10 year old girl who asked, Minda, what do you do for work? How would you
1: answer? I would say that I am trying to make the workplace better so when you get there, you'll be happy. Culture first.
0: Culture first. Culture first.
2: Culture first. Culture
1: first. Culture 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 first.
0: Culture first. Culture first. i I'm Damon Klotz, and this is Culture First. Hello, and welcome back to the Culture First Podcast. This is episode 10. We are now in double digits, and what a journey it has been to bring these episodes from an idea to reality. If you really knew me, you know that I can be quite sentimental, and I'm usually the first person in a group to make everyone stop and be present and to find beauty and meaning in the most simple moments in life. So when it comes to reflecting on the first 10 episodes... It's the personal stories that someone writes to me about how a particular episode has impacted them that means more to me than download numbers or accolades. Don't get me wrong though, I can definitely still celebrate those big moments. What you might not know is that the Culture First podcast was actually recently ranked in the top 50 new business podcasts by Apple, and is also sitting in the top 50 management podcasts globally. So that's definitely worth celebrating. But It's hearing directly from listeners, just like yourself, about how some of you now have new language to be talking about a subject that you didn't have before, or how you're educating leaders about how to be more human at work. These are the stories that really matter to me and to the rest of the team working on this. So I wanted to say thank you to all of you out there, whether you've been a guest, whether you've shared an episode, maybe you've written us a note, left a review, or you've simply just been a generous listener with your time. We all appreciate it. So, thank you. This episode, it's called A Seat at the Table. And I'm going to be talking a lot about change because the table, it needs to change. I'd like to believe that none of us are alone in wanting or expecting better from our workplaces. And we're also not alone in having to collectively do our part in creating the world that we know can and should exist. That's why I shared a story about wanting to be an activist on the previous episode. In my role as Coltrams work culture evangelist, I'm here to use the power of story to inspire listeners like yourself to be able to drive behavioural change at both the individual level and the organisational level. But just like you, I also need to do the work. And the work that we're going to be talking about today is how do we create a more equitable experience for women in the workplace. Intersectionality has taught us that though we share the same goals, it's important to understand the nuanced experiences that people have. So rather than do an episode where I'm going to be talking generally about women's experience in the workplace, I wanted to zoom in on two distinct experiences. The experience of women of colour and the experience of women at the highest level of leadership inside of a company. My first guest is Minda Hartz. One of the principles for this podcast when we select the main guest is that we want to have a rhythm of a well-known thought leader, an industry practitioner who's done the work, and then our third category is amplifying a voice that we think more people should know. More people need to know about Minda Hartz. Minda is the founder of the Memo LLC, a career development company for women of colour. The memo helps women of colour prepare for their seat at the table through education Community and access. Now, I first came across Minda through Twitter, and it was where I saw her story and the way that she shared it, it just really resonated with me. So, we actually then connected a little bit more because we were both featured on a list of HR's most inclusive influencers. And after our first conversation, I knew that I had to firstly learn more about the experiences that she was writing about in her book and secondly that I wanted to use the platform that we have here at CultureAmp and here on this podcast to share them with more people so through the magic that is podcasting let's cut straight to my conversation with Minda Thank you so much for having this conversation with me today.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be in San Francisco. And the coolest thing is uh, I came through the airport today at San Francisco International, I guess it's called, and I stopped inside one of the bookstores and they happened to have the memo in there. So that was like a surreal thing. So I couldn't, that couldn't have happened without coming to see you, Damon. So Amazing. thank you.
0: <laughs> I wanted to actually take a quick moment to see whether there was a mentor or success partner that you'd like to recognize today before we get into this conversation.
1: Yes, you know, I often say that success is not a solo sport and I wouldn't be sitting on the couch with you if it wasn't for success partners, even like yourself, were seeing the work that I do and saying, you know, let's have a conversation about it. So I want to say thank you to you and the Culture Amp that's really important to be seen. And I think that that has a lot to do with culture, as we'll talk about later. But uh, all through grade school, I had mentors. I didn't know them, right? But I had this sixth grade teacher. Her name was Mrs. Evans, and she saw something in me. And I was one of few students of color um, in the school. And she would take me and really spend time with me and and give me words of affirmation. And I always think back to those moments in time that really helped position me to where I am now. So even in our formative years, th- those affirmations, those people in our lives, I haven't seen her in over a decade. But um, if you're listening or you're out there, thank you.
0: <laughs> we'll be sure to send the episode yes. to her. <laughs> There's a famous uh, Hewlett-Packard internal report that said that men apply for a job when they meet only 60% of the qualifications but women apply only if they meet 100% of them. And I was listening to your podcast recently, Secure the Seat, and you talked about jumping off the roof. (laughs) Yes. Taking that leap of faith and really backing yourself. Can you tell me about the moment that you decided to jump off the roof and actually start the memo?
1: Yeah, I I was thinking about it and... 2013. Uh, But I didn't jump off the roof until 2015. And so sometimes, because I didn't think I had the money, I didn't think I had the credentials because I'd never been an entrepreneur before. And so I didn't think I was ready. And what I realized was, um, I'm never going, there's never going to be a right time. And so I literally just jumped off the roof. Um, It really, what forced me to jump off the roof was that the city of New York was having a business plan competition. And one of my friends was like, Minda, this will give you, because I'd been talking about the memo, right? Um, And they said, you just need to put it in there and this will help you get your business plan started. And, and I had like three weeks before the deadline and that's what catapulted me. And I had, it was either, you know, what do they say? Sit on the, you know, sit on the pot or get off the pie. Forget that. (laughs) But I had to get off the pot and I had to, and I had to to do it. And so I'm so grateful for that. I didn't win the business plan competition, but it was the catalyst.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then sometimes even not getting that first win straight away, gives you even more reason to say, actually, like, I've shown myself that I can even put something else out there. Right. And now it gives you that kind of that fire again to kind of actually want to go build it.
1: Right. So that was the thing. Like, I didn't win, but I didn't let that stop me. It just really pushed me like, wow, I saw the future of what this could be. And and sometimes, again, we just have to go for it.
0: What are some of the common misconceptions around the experience of women of color in the workplace?
1: That's a great question. I think one of them is that all women experience workplace the same uh, because we often use women as a very broad stroke. And so that could mean a whole lot of things. But most of the time when we say women in the workplace, we mean white women first and then everybody after. And so I think because we've been focused on one demographic of women, you tend to forget the experiences of others. And so, for example, some of us have to come to work as women of color, you know, with our colleagues touching our hair, or we have to change our names to accommodate those who don't know how to pronounce it, um, down to if we are experiencing discrimination that we haven't there's not been the culture um, created in the workplace where we can be honest and candid um, and vulnerable inside the workplace. And so for so long, many of us just sweep those things under the rug and, and it really starts to take a toll on our emotional well-being.
0: I think there's a lot to be said about the challenge that companies and specifically managers face to create a sense of belonging in the workplace. You know, a lot of the conversation over the last few years has moved from just diversity mm-hmm. to diversity and inclusion to then diversity and inclusion, then and also trying to understand whether someone feels like they belong in the workplace. And a lot of the culture amp studies into this space have found that you know belonging is one of the strongest drivers of actually having a diverse and inclusive workplace. But we also have to just belong in our own self, like right. and belong in our own skin, mm-hmm. right? So How important is it to actually feel that sense of belonging in your own skin first before you even think about whether I belong in a system, an organization, or a team?
1: That's a great question. And it's one of the things that I grappled with when I wrote the memo because, yes, there are these issues that happen within the system inside the workplace that we are in. But also, what about our own Individual selves, Um, you know. Lauren Hill said it best: "How you gonna win if you ain't right within?" And it's important for us to find out what we want out of the workplace. You know, Maslow has his hierarchy of needs, and when we think about our career needs, who who as a woman of, if I'm a woman of color in the workplace, what is it that I'm going to need from my manager? What type of environment is my basic level? What am I? how, How am I going to thrive? And so. If I've been at different organizations that have caused a lot of trauma, workplace trauma, then I take that to the next job and I take it to the next job. And I never give myself that time to heal so that I can secure my seat and add value to the company that I um, end up at the table at. And so I think it's so important for us to learn to pack light, unpack those things that have hurt us in the past in the workplace so that we can show up and feel like we belong because... You might feel that PTSD from a, a from a past place that, and you see some signs in this current place, but maybe it's not even that, but you're so stuck in, in that pain that you can't see that this is a better environment. So I do think we have to belong and be authentic to ourselves so that we can thrive in the workplace and not survive.
0: We, I think... In ourself, in our relationships, and also in the workplace, we're always the like combination of yeah. all of our experiences, both good and bad. Mm-hmm. So I think understanding where we're at as individuals, as well as how we're trying to fit into a team or like thrive in an organisation, is really important. Yeah. And then creating language to actually have a conversation around, because like when you go and enter an organisation, you or, or you want to enter in a way that also feels that I'm authentic and I'm here. But I'm also not going to shy away from the experiences in the past. And I want to use those to you know, better myself and those around me.
1: Right. I, absolutely. I think it's important that we have the hard conversation. And not only should we have these courageous conversations, but we also should be courageous listeners because you have a story to tell. I have a story to tell. But do I want to hear it? Mm. And that's the other thing because I can't, we can't move forward if I'm not listening to, to your experience.
0: Your book touches on the power of community and mentors. And for me, like I have fostered a lot of communities myself. I have been really positively impacted by mentors from a you know young age, from mm-hmm. people who saw something in me who I didn't see in myself. Yep. And I think it was such an important part of your book. But for someone who's looking to find a role model in their organization that maybe might feel like that the company isn't diverse and there isn't someone who actually can be the mentor that they want. What advice do you have for someone to either find someone inside an organization or potentially look outside of the organization to find that mentor?
1: Yeah, you know, in the book I talk about building your squad and I think for some of that is just showing up in in different so if for example the the birthday party in the in the break room, right? If people are hanging out and doing that for us to be present in these environments so that we get to know each other because you don't count anybody out like if we're peers sitting across um right next to each other in the open workspace you could potentially be a mentor i could potentially be a mentor so i think sometimes we think that it has to be way at the top where we get our mentorship but what think about what you need in your current career and where you want to go and you find those people that help kind of make your mega squad, right? So you don't need one particular person that holds all of the of the gems and the magical mentorship, but you mm. can have it from a lot of different people. That could be someone in a different department. And one thing for me, because I worked in environments where there weren't many people of color, a lot of my mentors and my sponsors didn't look like me. And so don't let race, age, identity, don't let any of those things stop you from finding people who are there to support you.
0: So much of the mentoring conversation when finding people who you might not think that should be my mentor straight away. Yeah. It's always, um, it's really been focused on age.
2: Mm-hmm. Like
0: reverse mentoring has always <laughs> been someone young can mentor someone old. Mm-hmm. Someone old can mentor someone young. But what you're talking about is like it's much more than just age. There's many different things that we should actually be open to when it comes to learning from others and actually bringing people into your squad.
1: Yeah, that intersectionality. And I think if we see ourselves in a way where, okay, maybe I've only had, you know, black men as my mentors, and they've given me great advice, but that's only one piece of a perspective, right? But what would it look like if I added all of these different perspectives? So we talk about diversity of thought sometimes, and even, you know, someone who is 21 is going to have a different thought process than someone who might be 55. But I think that we think about intergenerational mentors as, like you said, age, but it could be so much more, uh, it could be someone in Australia, right? (laughs) You know, it's just the perspectives really help broaden our um, scope on what is possible in the workplace.
0: All right, let's take a quick pause here. That final question that you just heard me ask, Minda, was about how women can find mentors inside and outside of their current organisation. So why is it important to ensure that you have both? Mentors inside of your organisation have the situational context that allows you to grow in the moment. They can advocate on your behalf And, you know, they can help you get stretch projects or give you continuous feedback that's going to develop you. They can also help you, you know, for promotions and negotiate things like pay rises and bonuses. But external mentors, they're powerful advocates in a different way. Their lack of organizational context is not an obstacle to your success. Rather, it can be an opportunity to push your thinking and beliefs to be bigger than you might be imagining for yourself inside of your current company. They might work in a different role, work in a different industry, and they can give you the insights into how other departments and organizations operate. Their network also opens you up to a range of different people that you might not currently have access to if you limit your mentors to only people that you're currently working with. So this brings me to my next guest, Lindsay Kaplan. She and Carolyn Childers solved a problem that a lot of senior female executives were faced with. Constantly being asked to mentor and provide support to others, while not having access to the community and mentors that they needed to continue their own growth and development. Regardless of your gender, your role, or your level, you might be saying to yourself, I feel the same way. I'm constantly filling up the cup of others that when it comes to me, I find myself pouring from an empty glass. So that's why we're here, to help, you know, get the stories ideas and actions that can help you fill up your cup. So, what is Chief? Well, let me start by reading the tagline from their website. Women have always been powerful. For generations, we had to do it alone. One woman at a table of men. But times change. We don't need a seat at that table. We're building our own. So after reading that, And I know that might have sounded a bit weird, me reading directly from their website, but after reading that and knowing that uh, several guests of this podcast have actually been and still are members of Chief, I knew that I wanted to learn more. So so Chief, it's a private network focused on connecting and supporting women leaders. To be accepted, applicants must be C-level or a rising VP, and it's the only organization designed for women seated at or around the table. I sat down with Lindsay to learn more about her experiences as a leader that led her to create Chief, as well as some of the success stories that they've helped co-create. So let's dive straight in and hear Lindsay describe Chief.
2: Well, imagine you're a woman, you've climbed the corporate ladder, you've gotten to a place where you're in a position of power, you have this new leadership role, and you look around the table, and you are the only or one of the only women seated at that table. So now you're at a point in your life where your work is becoming more challenging. You probably need a mentor more than you ever have before. And yet you are expected to be the mentor. You're expected to give all of your advice, so much of your time to helping women up that ladder that you just climbed. So we created Chief as a place for this woman in power to go for support along with other women who are also seated at the table. We bring women from different roles, different industries, different backgrounds together to really support and guide each other so they can not only continue on in that powerful role, but create a, a real ripple into their organizations and bring more women up with them.
0: We've all heard the story about the entrepreneur who created the product or service that they needed because it didn't exist at the time. So I want to learn about Lindsay's experience as a leader and what led to the creation of Chief.
2: So I think for me, my previous role was as vice president at uh, Casper, the mattress company. And Casper, super progressive organization, lots of women, but founded by five men who were really wonderful, great benefits for a working mom, really were aware that they wanted to bring women into their leadership roles. And yet I did still feel like as a senior woman of the organization, I was expected to uh, mentor. And I found myself looking back at my calendar and seeing all of the coffees I was doing, all of those, hey, do you have time for a call? Do you want to grab lunch? Can I talk to you about my career? All of that time that I was giving to these amazing women who were at Casper that I had spent zero time looking for myself. And that was the moment where I realized I needed something because I wasn't, drowning in those mentorship conversations. But as much as I was giving, I was never getting or taking away. And so my co-founder and I found ourselves both in these senior levels in our organizations and really found comfort in chatting with one another about the stress we were under and the problems we were facing. And we had this brainstorm of why can't we bring more women together who are in these leadership roles? And rather than have them feel like they are giving Let them be selfish. Let them take, let them get, and let's reward them and give them all of the support they need and that we needed to continue on and feel really resilient in the face of feeling like an only. I think it's phenomenal for somebody, uh, and especially women in business, to really reach out beyond their industry. It's so important to have those connections and that network that goes truly above and beyond where you are seated at the table. And then furthermore, we truly believe in the power of cognitive diversity to have different opinions, to have different backgrounds and people who have done different roles with, with vastly different uh, career journeys together in a room really can enlighten and improve upon your ability to lead as a manager. I think for me, I've always been the squeaky wheel at an organization. I'm the first person to call something out when it doesn't feel fair and business isn't fair. There's nothing fair about business, right? And so for me, it's been a personal obstacle of how do I play the game? How do I tone down some of the want inside of me to scream, hey, we're, we're leaving people in the dust and this doesn't feel fair. And why are, why are these decisions being made in a room full of men when we're working on a project that involves women right now? I had to figure out how to tone that down for so long. And that obstacle really became the inspiration for chief, which is let's create something that is designed first for women that could work universally for people who are in power. And so I'm, I'm glad that I was a squeaky wheel. I'm glad that I did, you know, cause a ruckus here or there in jobs I've had through the years, because I think it led me to where I am today, which is finding something that was truly dissatisfying and and disheartening to me as I went from job to job and building that into the root of the business and the mission that Chief is fighting for.
0: Is there a particular story that means a lot to you as one of the founders? from one of your members about the impact that they've experienced since joining Chief?
2: I have countless stories. Um, Even this week, as we're in quarantine, we've seen women come together now more than ever. Their peer groups come together. The amount of love and support that comes from women who are just looking out for one another has been incredibly impactful. And it is definitely the most meaningful job I have ever uh, had the privilege of, of doing. I think my favorite story was I hosted a dinner for some of our members and our guest of honor was a CEO, member of chief and CEO of a phenomenal ad agency in New York City. And we went around the table and kind of talked about what is that career ambition you have that maybe you've never articulated? What is the dream? And a member at the table said, you know, one day, and I've never said this out loud to anybody, but I would really love to run an ad agency like you do. That's why I signed up for this dinner. I I work in consulting right now, but I I could do it. That's the dream, and I would be amazing at it. And so later that evening, the CEO of this ad agency pulled that woman aside and said, you know, my sister agency is doing a, a confidential search for a managing director, uh, president of the agency, we are in final stages, but I'd love to bring you in as a dark horse candidate. And let's just, you know, have you come into the last rounds of interviews and see what happens. And lo and behold, she got the job. And I still get chills thinking about hearing this story because she never would have said it out loud. She wouldn't have been brought into this confidential search of which she was up against four men. And she had the confidence of knowing that she had met this woman. She knew what this woman had done in her career to get there. And so she felt confident enough going in to score the job. And it really sums up Chief in a nutshell, which is you know connecting people who wouldn't have met, creating opportunity, support, and giving each other that confidence that comes with having a powerful network at top
0: i got chills listening to that because i can i can picture that dinner and feel the nerves of that person asking themselves whether or not to actually ask that question and wondering you know should i like who am i to put this dream out to the world like i've been there myself um i you know you second guess yourself and you ask you know do i ask this question or not do i put my hand up but but backing yourself to put your hand up and asking that question and letting the world know that for every fear, for every fear that we hold, we also hold dreams. And little did that woman know that speaking up and saying that was the first step to changing the rest of her life.
2: Yes, yes. And we've seen countless stories about promotions, new jobs, and just big, satisfying wins at work. You know, a win doesn't need to be something as tangible as getting that next job. There are major wins that our chief members are having every day in the office, even if it's just feeling better about the work that they do, feeling more supported and feeling like they have this powerful support system waiting for them that's cheering them up from the sidelines.
0: For the listener who's aspiring to reach the C-suite one day, I wanted to hear what advice would Lindsay have for you that she wished she'd given herself 15 years ago?
2: I think the the corporate ladder is harder to climb the farther you go up. And so, you know, my advice for young women, younger men, anybody who's looking to advance in their career and ultimately get to a place where they would want to apply to chief is to really think about working creatively so often we get stuck in this day-to-day rut of what we're doing next and what job needs to get done. And I wish I had given this advice to myself uh, 15 years ago, but it's more about the impact you are making than the work you are doing. And so think about impact, impact the business, impact to your career when you're making those career decisions, when you're making the call in the office on you know wh- which way to pivot impact will always trump immediate action. I think that's really where you can 10x your career and really drive change in your organization as well.
0: Chief was recently featured on the Today Show in the United States. And one of your members was being interviewed when they asked if Chief was the answer to the boys club. And I just, I loved her answer. It was Amber Guild, and she's the president of the New York Times Tea Brand Studio. And she said that she wasn't looking to replicate systems that kept people out in the past and that you're trying to build a space to support each other. And to do that inclusively means inviting other people, including men, into that space. I'm really hoping that by the end of this episode, that listeners are going to realize that you know, they need to play a role in actually creating the equitable workforces of the future so that we don't need to be waiting eight generations for this change to happen. So, Lindsay, do you have a message for anyone who's listening, who's willing to be that activist so that we can make that dream a reality?
2: Speak up. Come join us. There's nothing to wait for, right? Like, if if you believe that there should be a fair and equitable C-suite, if you believe that the boardroom should look like a great representation of this country, there's, there's nothing stopping you from making that change today. So, speak up raise your hand, don't wait until somebody else does it, but you have power, every individual has power. And the more uh, progressive people stand up for what is right and, and make small changes together, the bigger that wave of change will be.
0: What advice do you have for female leaders who after hearing about Chief are full of hope, they're full of optimism, but the next day, they might find themselves going back to present to a boardroom or sitting at an exec table only for it still in this day and age to look and feel a bit like a boys club.
2: Take it with you. That's my advice. Take that feeling, that power, that comfort. Take it with you. Take it and hold it inside because chief in a way feels a bit like a a feminist utopia when i walk inside chief i see these brilliant amazing powerful women and men right there are men in chief it's it's not women only and yet this this amazing feeling of this is the future this is where powerful women can feel powerful together That spirit is so moving. And for women to take that with them when they walk out of the clubhouse, when they leave their peer group meeting, and for it to power their conversations and power them through times where they feel like they're all alone, that's really where I think the heart and the, the gravitas and the change will happen that Chief is really striving to achieve. It's not the club itself right? It's not the golf course. It wasn't the strip club or the steakhouse. It's the camaraderie that comes with what happens outside of the office and the community and the camaraderie and that network. That's really what we wanted to build more than anything. And I think that's what we're most proud of achieving.
0: Thank you to Lindsay Kaplan for joining me. You can learn more about Lindsay at culturefirstpodcast.com slash table, as well as heading to their website, Chief.com. So now we're going to go back to my conversation with Minda Hartz, and we're going to be talking about success partners and how we can all be one. But first, I wanted to spend a few minutes and check in with the Culture Amp people science and data science team to look at what our benchmark data can be telling us about the topics that we've been discussing. So when we're looking at this benchmark data, what I want to let you know first is that this data that I'm going to be talking about, it's made up of over 380,000 responses from the culture platform. And that data, what we were looking for is we wanted to see what are the differences when it came to the employee experience of women of color, white women, and how it was comparing to men. So the first areas that I want to bring our attention to, because I think they're relevant to some of the topics that we've been discussing throughout this episode We looked at topics like compensation, career opportunity and equality. So one of the questions that I want to bring to our attention was around the idea of total compensation. And when I say that, I'm talking about base salary, bonuses, benefits and equity. So we have a question in our benchmark that asks, I believe that my total compensation is fair relative to similar roles of the company. Now white women, they only agreed at 52% to that question and women of color were at 47%, five points below. Only 56% of white women believe that they're currently being made aware of career opportunities at the company, and again, women of colour were five points below that at 51%. We also wanted to look at some of some of the biggest gaps that we were seeing in this data, and we were seeing them between women of colour's experience and white men's experience when we are looking at the topics around equitable opportunities to succeed, being able to speak up without fear of negative consequences, and decision-making. So when we looked at the question around whether people from all backgrounds have equal opportunities to succeed at the company, white men scored at 72%, where women of colour were 11 points below. We also have a question that looks at whether you can voice a contrary opinion without fear of negative consequences. Women of colour were 10 points below. And then finally, whether you feel satisfied with how decisions are being made at the company. So white men scored quite low on that, 45%, but again, women of color were uh, nine points below that. So these are all statistically significant differences in the experience that women of color are having when we're looking at it compared to white men as well as white women. So if you want to learn more about some of that data that I just mentioned, uh, what you might not know is you can actually have a look at all of it for yourself. If you head to culturefirst.com insights, we've aggregated millions of And I I mean millions, like over 7 million data points that you can slice and dice in real time until your heart's content. So if you want to learn more about the different experiences that people are having at work, please feel free to head there and we'd love your feedback about how you find that website useful. So now that we've provided some context and I've spent some time with the culture and people science and data science team, it's time to head back to my conversation with Minda. I wanted to talk about the ways that uh, we can be success partners to help and support and um, advocate for women of colour. And one of the ways that I personally um, try to be a success partner is to make sure that I'm thinking about the people who aren't in the room when a a decision is being made or strategy is being executed on, or we're just quickly, you know, making an assumption about something. So I try to pull back from those assumptions and actually think about who is this impacting who's not here to have a voice and making sure that I can sort of stand up for that. But you talk specifically about being a success partner and not an ally. Why is that difference really important?
1: I think, so I think that I'm really, first of all, I have to say, I'm really happy that we have language to say that people understand what an ally is, right? And so I think uh, we've said it so much, everybody gets the definition of that, but I feel like allyship has been this badge of honor that people have put on for themselves, right? But they haven't really done anything to earn that title. And so for me, I want to see allyship shifted into action. And so what would it look like if you are an ally, you consider yourself an ally, but now you partner with me or you partner with someone on their success path. You're really invested in their success. And so not just a one-off, but you're really there to, like you said, think about who's missing in the room. And it can be as simple as the hiring process, right? So if you haven't traditionally or historically had, you know, people of color or LGBTQ or veterans or those who are disabled, if you haven't had them in the hiring pipeline, making sure that you don't um, fill that position until you have someone that you haven't had before in that. Because, again, that that diversity, we really need that to, to move forward. So I think you can be a success partner in that way. But then also, I want people to think about the people who are underrepresented in their companies, how you're showing up for them when someone is microaggressed, when, when there is bias taking place. Because I think sometimes we um, allyship we come after the has happened if we even have come to that person at all and said, you know Hey, I'm sorry that you went through this but being in that moment and saying or pulling someone else aside so that that Burden isn't always on the person that's underrepresented. I know I talk about in my book the situation and It's a great example of a boss of mine had I had orange fingernail polish on and he said you people love your bright colors now he joked for 15 minutes about black people loving bright colors, and my colleague was there who could have stepped in and stopped it, right? But, but he didn't. That is a great example of when we can be a success partner when it really counts.
0: Have you had a conversation uh, <laughs> with that manager or the other person in the car since?
1: I have not. <laughs> I don't know where they're where they're at or what they're doing, but um, I haven't. And, and what I realized in that situation was I stayed in that company for a couple of years and every day there was something like that and no one ever said anything or did anything. And for a while I settled into that. I thought it was okay. And I thought that this was going to be my career. This is what I have to deal with. And um, it's unfortunate that sometimes we feel like we don't have options.
0: Are there? um, You just spoke earlier about microaggressions and I want to touch Mm -hmm. a little bit more on like the patterns, behaviors, or microaggressions uh, that we can actually look out for and challenge both in ourselves as well as others and maybe particularly ones that are not commonly known that uh, is being experienced by people every single day?
1: Yeah. So sometimes I think they're subtle. And I don't know that this is unique for women of color, but some of the things that after being on the road and hitting all these cities, I often hear um, things that happen in, in meetings, right? So somebody says something, an off-color joke, and everybody laughs. And But nobody, if you're not of color or you're not the person that's that's affecting, you don't think that that's a big deal, right? And so I think us understanding the language that we're using and how that could affect other people, but then also um, other things, that, and I've had this happen, is questioning um, my expertise, right? So you may not question my colleague who has less credentials or less experience, but you're questioning me or you're going behind my back. And so I we find that there's a lot of uh, mistrust, I think, inside the workplace. And just because you haven't seen maybe women of color leading at the highest levels or sometimes at the table, then when we finally get there, you're questioning you know, our every move. And so I think um, sometimes, again, it, we may not understand what we're doing. And you might say, no, it has nothing to do with race. But think about what it feels like for the person on the other side of the table.
0: And the cognitive load to constantly be in that like ready to explain or yes. re- ready to justify All or like I deserve to be here <laughs> means that like you're just thinking about that so often that everyone else is walking into a meeting room without that sort of pressure always being applied. Which...
1: Always. I mean, when we step into a space and we're one of the only ones, you automatically we automatically put our armor on because we know there's going to be something that's probably said or something that we have to you know, we had to stay up late that night before so that we can go to bat for for our ideas. And not to say that that other people don't do that, but we feel like that is constantly on our back to constantly prove that now we've got to the table why we're here, right? And so that's a lot to deal with.
0: How can workplaces be progressive and empowering women of color without bordering on othering?
1: Yes, um, that's a great question. I think, first of all, we have to acknowledge that there is maybe a diversity problem and looking at the pipeline, because a lot of it is the retaining and advancing of women of color. And I think it can be a simple act of looking at your demographics and saying, okay, do we have, if women of color, if we want them to be happy and advance and thrive here at the workplace, do they see anyone that looks like them in leadership? And statistics have shown that women of color, black and brown women tend to bump their heads on middle management. And so what are we doing to make sure that we crack that glass ceiling here at our company so that we do push people up so that there is representation for women of color at the highest levels? And I think we're not seeing We're seeing a lot of rhetoric, but we're not seeing a lot of action. And I think that there are ways, and I think it's going to take some accelerated career paths to push women of color forward. And and I don't feel like that's affirmative action or any of those things. I think it goes back to that diversity debt. Like, what are we going to do to to make it right? And so um, if we don't address those needs, if we don't advance women of color in the workplace and be progressive about doing it, you said it earlier, who's missing? And let's find the right women of color and put them in these roles. And so it's not charity, but it's making sure that we're being intentional with our actions.
0: In the way that we acknowledge that being a person of color is a thing, what suggestions do you have for empowering people to also understand that whiteness is also a thing? <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, it's a thing. <laughs> it's, a, it's a real thing. And I think that, you know, for so long, I think some people, um, and I'm not white, so I, I this is my assumption, but... Um, when we say whiteness, that some people can be on the defense about that. And I think, you know, you have to own your privilege. You know, if it was the other way around, then we'd have to own our privilege too. But I think that goes back to success partners. How can you partner with someone who typically is not at the table with you? And that's not giving up your seat. That's adding a seat. And I think that once we realize that, um, again, success is not a solo sport and there's room for all of us to advance, um, it's not me versus you or, or any lack of. It's that... That culture ad. we're just adding to the dynamics of, of the future of work.
0: Do you have any suggestions for dealing with the feeling of being an outsider, particularly if you're the only woman of uh, color in the room? And how do we actually leverage being different without setting off stereotype bombs that might reinforce people's existing biases that they already have towards someone?
1: Yeah, I think it goes back to having these conversations because when you hire someone I think you can be candid and say hey we have not done the greatest job right but to pretend that we have it all together or just because you've hired a chief diversity officer that that makes it better um, I think that those are good places to start but actually having a game plan that you can tell every employee like this is what we're doing for diversity these are the metrics and when we don't hit this here are the consequences right so from the top down we're having this conversation so from you know the administrative assistant to the CEO to the janitor we're all understanding that this is the environment that we want to create. And everyone's not just looking at me like, oh, that's the black girl that we hired and now we've we've done it, right? But no, this is an environment of inclusion. And again, I think that you could have a few of something for starters and they still feel included. They still feel like they have a voice. And I think um, to your point of, not, you didn't say this, but kind of this token aspect, I think um, that's not what we're we're hiring for. Not We're not hiring for tokens, right, <laughs> just to, to fill a gap, but we're hiring for intention.
0: It can often fall to women of colour to explain and educate people on their experience from justifying how they got their job to maybe explaining why their hair is in a different style this week to last week. <laughs> do you believe it's always important for women of colour to have to play that role of the educator? And what tips would you offer to these women who are constantly being asked to educate on areas that have literally nothing to do with the performance of them or their job?
1: Yeah, you know, so for starters, I think, again, having these conversations, so when I wrote the book, I wrote it with the intention to say, I see you, I know you're tired, you're in your job description and did not say you'd have to tell them why your hair is curly today (laughs) and and short the next day like that. That is no one's business, right? But this is something that is part of our everyday being in the workplace. And so I even just I was at a meeting not too long ago and um, somebody said, oh, were you on vacation because you have your vacation braids in? And it's like, okay, (laughs) you know what? And what are you supposed to say to that? You know, you just learn to really laugh it off and and sweep it under the rug. But my braids had nothing to do with the reason why I'm there. And so in that moment, I could have said, you know what, Jim, that's inappropriate, but I didn't feel like I have to keep on saying that. And I think it's an individual thing for, for women of color. If you feel like you can say that to your colleagues and where they won't be, On the defense, then I think you should. But um, I think it's an individual thing. But I also think that our colleagues have to educate themselves, too. And I think for so long, there has been this hall pass of um, you don't have to educate yourself, but I have to educate myself on how to uh, assimilate in this this environment. But you haven't uh, educated yourself on how to be a good colleague to me. And so part of writing the memo was so that I take the pressure off a lot of women of color to have to explain some of just the basic things about showing up every day in the office. But if n- nobody reads it that's not of color, then it we keep having the cycle. And so I appreciate you um, giving life uh, to the memo to let them know that it, it may say women of color in the title, but it's really for for all readers. Yeah, Yeah. What I want women of color to know is that you give yourself permission to speak on some of those hard topics uh, because our colleagues are never going to know. And do you have to, you know, tap them on the hand every single day? No, but if that's what you feel is going to create a better culture for you, then you have to make that call yourself.
0: The impact of, like, the wider events happening in the world yeah. and the role of a manager of actually supporting employees when something like this happens. So, you know, I've been in the U.S. for four and a half years. Throughout my time here, there's been major events that have happened. I don't know whether I've shown up as that success partner for people when something has happened to someone's community. You know, what advice do you have, especially for managers when these events that are happening, albeit way too frequently around the world, uh, what advice do you have for them to be a better success partner?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that's the part of that emotional intelligence, you know, tapping into that is understanding that, yes, we do live in a society where, you know, black men and women are getting murdered in the streets, um, you know, our Muslim friends that, you know, things are happening there, our, our Jewish friends in this country, all around the world. And so I think it's important that if you do have people who identify in these ways, as a manager, you being invested in your talent, uh, to engage them in the way to ask if it's okay. When I was in the traditional workforce, I went through probably, it started with Trayvon, and it, a, a few different um, young men were, were gunned down. And... I didn't have any manager, any colleague ever ask what it might, what I might be feeling, right? And so, um, me and my friends, you know, we'd text like, "How are you feeling today?" Like nobody said anything, and and even to be in a place where no one even acknowledges Black History Month, you know, those sorts of things, um, just on the basic level of um, understanding your community, and as an as a manager thinking about some of the things, thinking about not just checking the box for the day. And I know as managers, we have so many things to do with our day, but actually being invested in the people that you work with and getting to know them because a little goes a long way, even just saying, you know, I saw what happened on the news today, are you okay? You know, or rallying the troops and saying, this happened, we wanna be supportive of Minda or whatever the case may be. And I think we just have to be there for each other. And that's how you create a better culture, knowing that everyone is invested, right? this happened in the United States. So it's not just my problem, it's all of our problem. And I think we just have to start looking at the hum- humanity piece of the of the workforce.
0: I think you touched on this in another interview that I've seen around, and I'm just fascinated about like w- whether an organization can unlearn if the table is <laughs> not a table that you'll want to sit at. And you're like, you know what, we need to buy a brand new one yeah. before we start adding more seats here. <laughs>
1: I I won't put anybody on blast, but I think there's a lot of companies who probably just need to toss out that table and and get a new one and and recreate the table because I think so much damage has been done. And there's one area that I haven't talked a lot about, but this like table fatigue, like I'm tired of always coming to the table and not having a seat. Right. So you may not. And back to your point of the culture ad, right? That's just kind of adding the seat, but I still don't have a voice. So let's do away with this old table, dismantle it, rebuild one to where the voices that weren't there the first time are represented. And I hope that companies will, again, they won't see that, oh, just because you have, you know, five white men and women uh, doesn't mean that one of them has to leave, but let's shake it up a bit let's add to this right and um and i think that we all can have a place at the table but we're gonna have to unlearn what has been uh, comfortable for many of us
0: a lot of the conversations we've had has really centered on our experiences once we're already in the workforce how much of this do you think actually needs to go back to the 10-year-old girl that we you know, hmm. spoke about at the start, describing the work that you do? like What can we actually be doing at a very early age to actually ensure that when they do finally enter the workforce, that it is the kind of place where they do want to
1: enter? Yeah, I think so right now it's interesting. I'm working on a, starting to write the next book, and it's actually going to be for young adults, uh, young women of color, so that you understand your power and your worth before you even get to the workplace that may not have a seat for you. Because I think a lot of that, um, we've been normalized as young girls. I, I touch on it a little in the memo, but I had some issues when I was in junior high school with being one of the only ones at my at my school and how I did have some issues with some of my teachers. But And I had some friends who would call me racial slurs, but they didn't mean any harm, right? And so for so long, you start to put that in your mind and think that people don't mean harm. And so you never take your feelings seriously. And I think it starts from a very young age to, honor our feelings and find our voice. Um, Dr. King said, let's live in the monologue and not the dialogue. And I think that starts from our our youth. Um, And so for me, I want to equip the young 10-year-old. So when she gets to the workplace. If there are some things that are not in order, she already understands who she is and can bring her authentic self that's not already kind of beat down (laughs) from from the microaggressions and the bias. And she understands already how to have those. She has the tools in her toolkit to have the hard conversations and ask the right questions during the interview process. And so I want to catch it at an earlier age.
0: If you could send a memo directly to the leaders and activists listening to this podcast, what would it say?
1: What are you going to do in the next 30 days to change the way your table looks?
0: Thank you to Minda Hartz and Lindsay Kaplan for joining me on today's episode of the Culture First podcast to discuss securing a seat at the table. It was an incredible discussion where we spoke a lot about, is the table, like, do we need to chuck out the table? How are we going to get those seats? And you know, I know, like, personally for me, I'm leaving this episode feeling full of inspiration as well as feeling ready to go do my part so that I can help create the equitable world of work that I know should and can exist. And if you're feeling a similar way and you want to be taking action on what you're hearing in today's episode, then I really want you to head over to the Culture First Podcast website. So head to culturefirstpodcast.com slash voice. There you can learn more about today's topic get directly connected to our guests as well as get the gift that we're offering the ugly truth an excerpt from Minderhart's book the memo i read the memo back in 2019 and for me it was a game changer it really helped me better empathize with the experience that women of color have been having in the workplace and what i can be doing as a success partner to be able to make the changes that we all need so that they can secure a seat at the table so I highly encourage you to get the chapter, and please I uh, also encourage you to get the book. If your circumstances are stopping you from purchasing the book, please let me know. I'd love to personally do my part to make sure that more people read it. So finally, as I wrap up today's episode, I'd love to know your thoughts. So please use the hashtag culturefirstpodcast on social media and tag at cultureamp or myself at Damon DamonCloths. I do want to let you know that we have some exciting news to share soon about what's next in store for the Culture First podcast. But until then, I am going to leave you hanging with one of my favourite Australianisms to say goodbye. Have a good one.